Welcome to Into the Verse, the Parsha podcast where we dive deep into the verses to share new and unexpected insights, illuminating the Parsha like you've never seen before. Welcome back to Into the Verse. This is Ari Levison, joined today by my colleague Daniel Lowenstein. Great to have you on, Daniel. Great to be here. So, Daniel, today I want to talk to you about some stuff that really blew my mind when I first found it. First, a quick recap of the Parsha. Yitro gets its name from Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, who joins the Israelite camp and rearranges their legal system. But the real highlight of this week's Parsha is the revelation at Sinai. After three days of preparation, God came, descended on Mount Sinai in a thundery, fiery spectacle, and finally gives B'nai Israel the Ten Commandments, the Aseret Hadibrot. And those Ten Commandments, they're, they're later written down on the two tablets, the Luchot, which become an extremely important symbol in Judaism. The synagogue I was davening at this morning had a huge depiction of the two tablets with the Ten Commandments right above the Ark in the synagogue, like front and center. Um, I imagine Daniel Yoshel probably has some depiction of them too. Yeah, I mean, if not like seven of them, sure, yeah. <laughs> right, so when you have that, that depiction of the Ten Commandments and the tablets in Yoshel, what do those look like? What do they look like? Um, they're usually either rectangular or... Shape-wise, right, they're some kind of rectangle, maybe they're rounded at the top, maybe they're flat. Right. Um, and then what's written on them? Usually like the first two or three words of each of the Ten Commandments, you know, five on one side, five on the other. Right, you have uh, the first five on one side, second five on the other side. So, okay, why am I asking you all this? Well, what if I told you that every depiction you have ever seen of the Ten Commandments on these two tablets is totally wrong. Um, I'd say that's a pretty bold claim to make, given the, the weight of all the history and tradition behind it. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that's going to need a lot of, a lot of uh, backing up. Certainly, right? And it'd probably get me in a lot of trouble too. Well, the other day I was looking for that Pasuk that says that the Ten Commandments were divided five and five on each tablet. Only I couldn't find it. It turns out that Pasuk doesn't exist. Daniel, are you familiar with the Mandela Effect? Oh, I've definitely heard of it. As soon as you say it, I'm going to be like, oh, I know what that is, but it's, but it's not coming to me right now. So it's, it's named after the fact that somehow there became this like widespread memory that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 80s. It, somehow like a bunch of people just became convinced that this is what happened and that they remember this happening. But of course, that just didn't happen. He uh, lived until 2013. And yet somehow people just are sure that they remember this being the case. And this became known as the Mandela effect. So a really great example um, is that line from Star Wars that we all remember so well when Darth Vader says hmm. to Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. Luke, I am your father. Right. Well, he never says it. He says, I am your father, but he doesn't say, Luke, I am your father. Yeah. Right. So that's what it felt like what's going on here is like this Mandela effect that I was just like, I was sure that there was a puzzle that says there was written five and five on each of the two tablets. But it's not there at all, which led me to look around and see, well, what's the source of this? Right? Where did we get this idea that we all know that's on every show, this depiction of the two tablets with the Ten Commandments, five on each side? So that brought me to the Mechilta de Rabbi Shimon, which is a collection of Midrashim. And a similar version of this is quoted in a few different places. So it starts off, Elahin Aseret Hadibro. These are the Ten Commandments. Uh, but because... Basically, it's actually, we know the Ten Commandments because it says there are 10 of them, but it's not so obvious exactly how to divide them. So here it is, setting the facts straight. This is how you divide them. Anochi, I am Hashem, your God. Lo yelachai, you shouldn't have any other gods. Lo tisav, zachor. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it li- lists all the Ten Commandments. And then, Daniel, can you read what it says next? Uh, yeah, it says, Chamisha aluach zeh, chamisha aluach zeh. Divei Rabbi Chanin and Gamliel. Oh, interesting. So it says that five written on this tablet and five written on that tablet, according to the opinion of Rabbi Chanin ben Gamliel, which implies there's another opinion, which is the next thing that says, "Bechachamim omrin asara aluach zeh, v'asara aluach zeh." Huh. So the opinion of the Chachamim is that all ten were on each of them. I've never heard this before. Isn't that shocking? Yeah, that, that <laughs> every is... depiction I've ever seen is five and five, and yet. The opinion of the sages, the majority opinion, is that it was 10 and 10, that all 10 of the commandments were written on each of the two tablets. I gotta say, I, I was not expecting to see that. Very, very interesting. Okay. And, you know, okay, there is an opinion that it was 5 and 5, right, according to one Rabbi Hanina. So, you know, we don't have to go remodeling all of the shells. Um but I couldn't get over the fact that it seems like the majority of the opinion of the sages is that that's not what they looked like. Definitely sharing the same sentiment that you're expressing. And I'm like also thinking through a bunch of questions. I mean, like, I guess mainly they're historical questions, like what happened to this opinion and like how did it become so incredibly non-mainstream that like I've never even heard of it. But I guess also I'm interested textually if there's some sort of, you know, textual route to this debate. You know, is there are they reading a verse differently? You know, is there some source that they're like uh, understanding in different ways? Yeah, d- definitely a lot of questions. Right. I'm sure some of our listeners are better historians than you or I and maybe have some idea of how this minority opinion ended up becoming so widespread. Right? But we also have to ask the question of what are they basing this opinion on? Right. Where do they get this from? Is there anything that they're reading that makes them say this? And then also, well, if all 10 are written on each of the two tablets, then why do we have these two identical tablets? What's the point of that? It's redundant. Oh, that's a much better question than the one I had. <laughs> well, let's deal with your question first, though, because that, that is really important. So this debate between Rabbi Hanina and the sages is actually quoted in a few different places in rabbinic literature. And in most of the other places where it's quoted, the sages bring the following verse as their proof for why they believe that the Ten Commandments were written all ten on each tablet. And the verse they quote is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. This is Moses retelling the story of the revelation experience at Sinai. And he says, right? So God told you this covenant, which he commanded you to do, right? These ten things. And he wrote them on the two stone tablets. Yeah, so it seems to be they're, they're reading something like, you know, it says, Aserat Hadarim, that they're the 10 things. And then it just says, Vayechtevim, he wrote those 10 things, Al Shneeluchot Avanim, on these two tablets. So I guess they're just inferring, like, he wrote this thing on each of the tablets. You know, I, I understand how that, that's a, like a viable read of the verse. Yeah, it certainly seems viable, although, you know, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous. As, as to what it means, how, how those 10 were written onto the two tablets. And in fact, Rabbi Hanina actually quotes the exact same verse to support his opinion. Yep, that's ambiguity for you. So the, the commentators on these rabbinic sources try to figure out when each of them are, are quoting this verse to support their opinion, what are they reading into it? What are they noticing that they're, they're trying to use to actually prove their point? Right? Because the way that these drushot, um, these exegesis of Chazal usually work is 
right? They, they find some nuance, some extra word that doesn't need to be there that allows them to say what they're saying. Did the commentators point out something like specific here about what makes the Chumim have their approach? Yeah, so the commentators actually have a few different theories as to what it might be. One theory is it it's the combination of talking about saying the Ten Commandments and writing the Ten Commandments. And they say, just as they were said all ten together, uh, so too they were written all ten together on each one of the two tablets. Um, there's a totally different explanation that it, it's actually, it's the words, Aseret Hadvarim, these ten things, because really you could read the whole verse without those words. Um, so they're somewhat superfluous in this verse. And maybe the words, these ten things, is coming to say that it was all ten things that were written on each one of the tablets. Those all sound like very like kind of classic midrash style ways of interpreting a pasuk. It's not like you know you read it and you kind of just intuit it from a literary sense like this is what it means, but you know it's just like kind of very carefully paying attention to extra words and that kind of stuff, which you know makes sense. But obviously, there's again there's that ambiguity, right? And and it it also feels like that there's got to be something more here. Because these all say, like, the how of how how they make this read. Right, but it doesn't talk about the why. Exactly. It doesn't talk about the why. And, and I think the best way to approach it is what Rabbi Foreman calls his gunpowder and trigger uh, theory. Are you, are you familiar with this? Uh, I don't think I'm familiar with this analogy. So rather than explain it myself, I'm actually just going to let Rabbi Foreman explain it. Here's a recording of him explaining this metaphor on a podcast. My trigger and gunpowder theory. If you're going to fire a gun, you need two things, right? You have to pull a trigger, but you also need gunpowder in the chamber, right? In order for a medrash to be a medrash, you got to have a trigger and you got to have gunpowder in the chamber. The trigger is the nominal um, diuk, which is happening in the text, which is which is an anomaly, which Rashi or the Medrash is picking up on and becomes the basis for a drash. Chazal would never say what they were saying without gunpowder. Gunpowder is that Chazal had a larger 50,000 foot view of what was going on, and they were bothered with larger themes within the story. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess what Roy Foreman seems to be saying or arguing is that like, Chazal don't just make drushes to make drushes. When a medrash makes a point, it always has some sort of basis in the text for making its point, but its point is actually something larger than just the textual nuance picking up on it and its explanation. There's some sort of like larger, you know, philosophical or metaphysical point that it's making, and we shouldn't just assume that midrashim are just there to like make interesting casual observations that have no meaning to our lives, which I think fits with Roy Foreman's larger view, which I think is a, is a really important perspective on Torah in general, which is that it's not a literary book and it's not a history book. It's a guidebook. And so everything in there actually has some sort of actual, like, meaningful substance and bearing on our lives. Yeah, exactly. And, and so whatever anomaly that sages noticed in this verse in Devarim, that was just the trigger. But there had to be some gunpowder there, some deeper reason why they're saying all Ten Commandments are written on each one of the tablets. So what is that deeper reason? Um, they don't say. It's it's left for us to try to look for. But what jumps out to me is actually a word in the verse that they quoted, which is the word uh, brit, covenant. This verse, it's describing the Ten Commandments as a covenant. And that's not the way... I'm used to thinking about the Ten Commandments, but the more I looked into it, I realized the Torah actually seems to be pretty clear that that's what the Ten Commandments are. Um, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, 
this is in the preparation for the revelation at Sinai. It says, And now if you listen to my voice, and if you keep my covenant, then you will be for me a treasured nation amongst all the nations. And at this point, we haven't gotten the Ten Commandments yet, but that covenant um, appears to be the Ten Commandments. Right, and there are themes there about like, you know, will be God's holy nation and, and he'll be our God. There's definitely some sort of element of like, like a both sides kind of event happening that's culminating at Sinai. Yeah, and, and then when the Ten Commandments are actually written on the tablets in Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, it says, And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, these 10 things. Right, so I think it's it's pretty clear that what the Ten Commandments are is a covenant. Okay. We keep the Ten Commandments. God will treat us as his treasure nation. Yes. I think you've proved certainly beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, what was happening with the Ten Commandments was a breach. Um, how does that help us figure out why we need two copies? Right. So if the Ten Commandments are a covenant, a breach, um, and they're written on the Lucho, and the Luchot are described as like Luchot Habrit, the tablets of the covenant, or actually earlier on, Luchot Haidut, the tablets of the testimony. If you're going to write down a covenant, why might you want two copies of it? Uh, I'm going to walk right into this one. I'm going to say you want one copy for each party. Exactly. You want one copy for each party. It makes total sense. I mean, it almost makes total sense. <laughs> it almost makes total sense. Why? Yeah, I mean, like, so far, like, a lot of things are lining up really, really nicely here, right? You're pointing out this is a covenant, and they're like, covenants have two parties. Uh, so, like, if there's an opinion that's reading this verse and saying, oh, the Luchot are actually, you know, two copies of the exact same thing, then it would really make a lot of sense to say, like, okay, great, you know, there's a copy for each party. And, you know, if the two parties here are, like, one party's God and one party is, is, is the Israelites, so then sort of everyone knows these are the things that were established, and, like, here's your copy, Israel, and like, here's your copy, God. And that sounds like a totally viable explanation for why there'd be two copies of the exact same thing. And it's also kind of like a, a beautiful explanation because it's sort of emphasizing the the kind of the covenantal aspect of it, that like the two sides aspect of it, that like, you know, that it was important for this thing to be established and kept as a record or a testimony for both parties, right? There's like an elegance to it. And, you know, I was wondering, like, this actually makes sense according to like our, our modern understanding of a covenant. You know, you make two carbon copies of any contract that you're going to sign. But I did a little historical research and it turns out that we actually have evidence of a treaty signed between the Hittites and the Egyptians, actually in the reign of Ramses II, who, according to a lot of historians, was actually the pharaoh of the Exodus, these two nations fought for almost 20 years and then decided to make peace. And they signed this covenant and they each have a written copy of this covenant. We, we've discovered these nearly identical copies that are written in stone, one in Egypt and one with the Hittites. So you're saying like, it's, it's not even like anachronistic of us to say like, oh, two parties, two copies. Like that, 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 yeah. was, that was practiced for a long time in history. Yeah. And, and there's... It's probably even more similar to this, to the Hittite Caesarean vassal treaty, where you have kind of one power that's above and one that's below. And we won't go all into that now. We'll put a link to the description. It's really interesting if you want to look into that. We're not going into the Hittite Caesarean treaty now. Sorry. 
Such a tease. Okay, fine. You, you insist. <laughs> I guess. I guess the only thing that I'm like a little hung up on or um, hesitant about. Maybe not so little. I'm, I'm not. I'm very much misremembering the way things unfolded. I think both copies stayed downstairs. You'd expect, you know, to have each party keep a copy. Then there'd be like one for the Jewish people and one for God, and they'd be like split up and separated. And each person gets to keep his copy, so to speak. That's like the only thing that sort of strikes me as odd about it. But you know, otherwise, it's a really cool idea and it's intriguing. Um, does that, does that question make right. sense? Exactly. That's the question. If this is just this agreement, two parties, and each of them are supposed to have a copy, why don't they each take their copy and split? But let's think about it for a second. If you're B'nai Yisrael and you have your copy of the treaty, this is like the most important possession that you own. Where's the best place you could put that? It's the same place, by the way, that we keep the container of man, which we're told to store as a memory. It's the same place that we keep the copy of the Sefer Torah that we're never supposed to forget. Right. It's not a Chase security deposit box. Yeah, right. I guess it would make sense that the most uh, the most sacred, holy, secure, and appropriate site would probably be putting it in the Aron Kodesh, which is where indeed it was kept, or they were kept. Yeah, it's at the center of the whole camp. It's the holiest place, the most secure. And in fact, in the Caesarean Vassal Treaties, that's exactly where they kept these stone tablets of their covenants. Was In the, in the Aron Kodesh? <laughs> in the Iron Kodesh. It was just chock full, overflowing. <laughs> no, but actually, but actually, what do you mean? Um, in their own temples. That was the place that they uh-huh. would keep them. And that's where archaeologists have discovered them. Um, but now think about if you're God, where's the most logical place to put your copy? If there is anywhere on earth that would make sense to put your copy, where would it be? Um, yeah, probably in the uh, holiest place that is the place that God is most manifest, which coincidentally is the Aron Kodesh. Right, it's exactly the same place. Mm-hmm. Right, so in theory, you have these two copies, one for us and one for God. And in theory, we could take them and go our own way. But the best place for each of us to put them happens to be the same place, which is at the center of this Mishkan. This is really interesting and really compelling. I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of like wondering. I'm like thinking to myself about whether it's just like a, like a funny coincidence that like the the place to store the covenant for both parties happens to be the same place, or if there's like kind of maybe something something deeper to it. And like you know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think anything I would say would be speculative. But one thing I'm kind of thinking about is like this custom that a lot of Jewish families have to hang up a ketubah in their house, which is like a really kind of like a really funny thing to do because uh, a ketubah is a you know is like a it's like a marriage contract. I think there's like this kind of romantic quality attached to it by a lot of people, but it's like very technical and very monetary. And like, you know, it's kind of funny if you kind of actually read it and know what it's talking about. But like people make it beautiful and they get it really nice, you know, really nicely framed and put it in their houses, you know, like on, on display. And kind of the reason I'm thinking about that is because I feel like in all of your like, you know, uh, ancient Near East Hittite examples of covenants, I think they were really like, there were two separate parties that lived in geographically distinct locations and had their own interests and wanted to form some sort of covenantal relationship to sort of guarantee, you know, this is how I'll treat you, this is how you'll treat me. But like, essentially, they're different, right? We were kind of really interesting about like, like a married couple with a contract. You know, they, they kind of only need one because they're a unit, even though it's representing two different interests there. But the point is, is that the, the covenant is making them into kind of one unit. And it's not just like, 
an alliance of convenience or some sort of formalization of rules between two distinct parties, but it's actually representing people's interests coming together in an incredibly deep way. So that even if there are like technical covenantal legal aspects of it, you know, the fact that that is a, is a, you know, a proxy or an outcome of the fact that there's this kind of beautiful thing that they've entered into, you don't need two copies of Aksuba. And it can be something that you hang up in your house as like a sign of what you have together. And I guess I'm just wondering if there's something similar going on. I mean, I know a lot of people like to talk, whether, you know, more literally or more allegorically about like a marriage happening with God at Har Sinai. But however you slice it, you know, the fact that God asks for a Mishkan to be built as a, you know, as a dwelling place for him to live among the people of Israel and bring himself as close as possible to earth and let us be as close as possible to him in his heavens by having this one central location that's in the middle of the Israelite camp, it's definitely more of like the closest of a marriage covenant than it is like the distance and distinctness of Caesar and, and the Hittites or, or whatever the other example would be. And so maybe there is something that's like kind of very apropos or symbolic of the fact that it's in the same place because it's not a covenant that's establishing ground rules for separate parties, but it's actually establishing ground rules for parties that are kind of uniting. Yeah, God's coming to them and saying, I want to live with you. I want to move in, <laughs> right? Like I want to, I want to like join together in this like really special, close, intimate relationship. And, you know, Daniel, you were, you know, you're talking about, you know, other Brits maybe being two separate parties. I mean, just look at the examples that we have in the Torah of Brits that people make with each other. Um, right? Ava makes a Brit with Avimelech, Yitzhak makes a Brit with Avimelech, and Yaakov makes a Brit with Lavan. Um, and in each one of these cases, it's two people who really don't get along with each other, and they are basically ma- making mutual non-aggression packs, right? They're saying, like, you're going to go one way, I'm going to go my other. And in each one of these cases, after they make this breed, they split and never see each other again. Like, that's the point of it. It's like, we don't like each other, <laughs> we don't really want to have anything to do with each other, so we're going to make this covenant so that we can split and never see each other again. It's really, it's really interesting, yeah. And God's is the exact opposite. He's saying, I'm introducing myself to you and I want to have a lifelong relationship with you. And so it's going to be modeled after these other covenants and it's going to start in the same way. We're each going to have our own copy of it. But instead of taking those copies and splitting, we're both going to put those copies in our shared home. Yeah, that definitely definitely feels um, a little bit more than coincidental. Yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of take for granted... Uh, the fact that God wants to have this relationship with us. But I guess that's, that's really not something so obvious, I mean, especially when you compare it to everything else that B'nai Israel as a people have experienced until this point in their history. Uh, all the encounters that they've had with other people who are just like, you know, the, the best they can hope for is to coexist. Um, this relationship that they're about to begin building with God is, is really something remarkable. And here we have the two tablets as a symbol of that. And, and still to this day, we put images of those tablets everywhere, whether we're holding like the minority opinion uh, or maybe they should all look a little bit different. Um, yeah, every time you see those, it's, it's a reminder of God's desire for closeness. Yeah, you know, I'm actually, I'm thinking a little bit about your point, like, because, you know, there is this whole like, Maybe should we should we you know hiring new uh, new architects or uh, new designers for our shuls and stuff? But I think kind of like a, a, a weirdly maybe appropriate takeaway for me, thinking about the Chachamim's perspective on the luchos is that like I think like when I see a model of the luchos in my shul, 
and it only has one of them, there's kind of something like appropriate about that because we're supposed to have a piece of mikdash and a location that has both of those things where God's home really is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there's like absolutely nothing wrong with looking at the Luchos uh, models in Shula and kind of being inspired by the, you know, these guidelines that God gave us to, to live good godly lives and have like a very positive feeling about it. But there's, there's also kind of like a, a somewhat sad and maybe somewhat, you know, longing or, or hopeful way of looking at it also, which is that we're looking forward to the time when we, when we actually have both Luchos together. And it's not just, you know, us in our small houses of worship, you know, yearning for God, but God also in his house yearning for connection with us. That's this week's episode. To listen to last year's episodes, as well as our world-famous Parsha and Holiday videos, head on over to alephbeta.org and sign up for a membership. This episode is recorded by Ari Levison together with Daniel Lowenstein. This episode was produced by Evan Wiener. Audio editing was done by Shifa Jacobs. Our production manager is Adina Blaustein. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.